0: Paid search, paid social, SEO, and content marketing are like two big pieces of the flywheel for us. And so our goal is to meet entrepreneurs wherever they are in their journey to starting a store and reach them with the right message, right information and context so that they can take the next step forward in their journey.
1: Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. Hi, everyone. We are so happy to have our next guest, Morgan Brown, the VP of Growth of Shopify and author of Hacking Growth How Today Fastest Growing Companies Drive Breakout Success. Prior to Shopify, Morgan led the product team at Facebook and was the chief operating officer for Inman News, the leading source for real estate news, technology, and events. Morgan, we've known each other for a long time, and I am so excited to have you on the show today. You were one of our first speakers at our mobile growth uh, events. You helped us start that brand. So here we are seven years later. Welcome. Welcome.
0: Yeah, I can't believe it's been that
1: long. A thanks
0: for having me. I'm super excited to catch back up with you.
1: Yeah, I remember that talk very well. It was fun. It was, I think, really awesome. Let's start where you are today. I know a lot has changed in your career, but I'm curious about your team at Shopify, the team that you're leading and the work that you're doing there. Tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, I'm the VP of growth at Shopify. And so the growth team at Shopify, we're really focused on the number of merchants and entrepreneurs that are using the Shopify platform at any time. And so the way that we go about that is we have two large pillars. We have customer acquisition, which is the team that I lead. So this is all the paid marketing, performance marketing, like affiliates, content marketing, and organic channels. Email marketing and lifecycle marketing, and then conversion rate optimization teams. And then my counterpart, my peer, Archie Abrams, who would be an awesome guest for your show as well. He was uh, he led rider growth at Lyft, and he was the chief product officer at Udemy before coming to Shopify. He leads all of the sign up, activation, and trial success kind of teams. And so together, our teams are really focused on driving the number of people that that use Shopify to to conduct their business online or otherwise.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I actually know Archie. I interviewed him for uh, something when we were when he was actually at Lyft.
0: Awesome. Yeah, super smart.
1: Yeah, he's a really awesome guy. So interesting, when you talk about user acquisition, why do you think, you know, when you think about Shopify, you've mentioned a lot of different channels. How do you Which one are some more important than others are all created equal? How do you think about that?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I think it starts with understanding how Shopify grows as a company. And so the way that Shopify grows is that the more merchants that use Shopify as a platform to run their business, the more gross merchandise volume that they generate through the platform. A portion of that revenue we can then invest in making our platform better for merchants. So we can enable more capabilities, more tools, all of that, and then making the platform better then attracts more merchants. So that's the, the big Shopify flywheel. And then if you kind of drive into the more merchants piece, that's where the customer acquisition flywheels come in, where we generate some visitors, some portion of those visitors ultimately become merchants, we take a portion of the revenue generated from those merchants and we put those back into our core channels, which generate more merchants coming to them and that flywheel spins. And so as owners of that customer acquisition flywheel, we're helping power one piece of the overall Shopify flywheel. So that's kind of conceptually how I think about it. And then in terms of your specific question around the channels, yeah, there are core drivers of that customer acquisition flywheel. I think one that is unfair advantage for shopify is just our brand people love the shopify brand shopify has long been a merchant obsessed company if you contrast it say with amazon amazon is customer obsessed so they focus everything on the customer we are merchant obsessed so we focus everything on the merchant and therefore merchants have a lot of trust and faith and belief in the shopify brand and so one huge component is that word of mouth merchant referral piece that The company has done a great job over the last like decade plus building that brand. So that's one kind of unfair advantage. But then, you know, kind of traditional customer acquisition channels like paid acquisitions, paid search, paid social, SEO and content marketing are like two big pieces of the flywheel for us. And, And so our goal is to meet entrepreneurs wherever they are in their journey to starting a store and reach them with the right message, right information and context so that they can take the next step forward in their journey. And so, you know, whether that's on our content marketing, understanding what people are looking for in terms of starting a business or starting an online store, and then helping them by creating the content that's going to answer those questions. And that's one big uh, part of our business. And then obviously on the, the paid acquisition side, you're kind of in the mid and lower funnel in terms of like intent and conversion. And so there we want to reach people who are looking to get started and make it as easy as possible to do that. So uh, happy to dive more into the specific channels and the stuff we're doing there, but that's conceptually how we think about customer acquisition.
1: Maybe just the follow-up question. Some of these channels are obviously easier to measure than others. It's Mm -hmm. a lot harder to think about to measure maybe word of mouth organic versus ads how do you compare the channels and how do you decide where to put more money in or more like people and effort and since it's like you're it's not always apples versus apples
0: yeah for sure it's a really good question and it's something like we're constantly iterating on and learning every day we use a lot of the tools that you would expect us to use in terms of understanding customer acquisition costs predicted lifetime value return on ad spend All of those types of measures. But at some point, we also just have a general point of view on the world in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. So I'll give you a specific example here. So for us, while we use like return on ad spend and some of these measures that I just mentioned, we're not necessarily over optimizing for any given one of them. So what I mean by that is like Shopify's mission is to make commerce better for everyone everywhere. And our mission is to make it as easy as possible for entrepreneurs to get started on their path to like independence and creating economic independence. And so while that's a very high level statement, what it means is like in our customer acquisition, we're not necessarily optimizing for the smallest, most profitable group of people, we're actually trying to optimize for the largest group of people and making entrepreneurship possible, making getting started with Shopify possible with unit economics that makes sense for our business. Our team isn't trying to drive uh, return on ad spend for the sake of return on ad spend, but we're using it as a measure to understand our efficiency and effectiveness at reaching this like higher order bit objective, which is to make it as easy as possible to discover and get started on Shopify. So that objective function or North Star is important in guiding how we use the telemetry and the metrics that we're getting to make decisions. And it's not always the most obvious choice. Like some companies are very focused on ROAS, maximize ROAS at all costs for us to maximize the number of entrepreneurs getting started on Shopify within acceptable unit economics that work for the business. And that depend on a variety of factors, but all ladder up into that kind of higher order bit. And so like on SEO, for example, we know that Google is where aspiring entrepreneurs turn to get specific questions answered about their business. And so we know we want to be one of the resources the top resource that, that people turn to and so we'll invest in SEO audience development, top of funnel, impression share piece just from first principles of knowing that's important. We're a very metrics driven organization obviously like to be in growth you have to be. but we make sure it's through the lens of that North Star of like number of active merchants, optionality and making entrepreneurship accessible and then what it means to the unit economics for our business not the other way around, which I think is really important.
1: I like that. So it feels a lot more like you're thinking longer term and you probably are modeling the success rate of these entrepreneurs and you probably have numbers and all of that. Uh, But I like the idea that... Very discreetly, we look at like first sessions and then we
0: look at number of leads and then we look at how many leads become uh, prospects and how many become customers and we slice it by all the cohorts. And yeah, we really care about each of those steps but it's a means to an end not the end itself so you know there's no value in like spiking lead conversion rate if ultimately they're not going to become customers it's not helpful to create a bunch of customers who then ultimately aren't successful over the long term both sure from a churn perspective and a return on ad spend perspective but also just from a merchant first perspective that we we want to get people set up and and successful. So we look at everything, long-term retention, activation rates, top of funnel performance as a way to understand whether we're headed towards that goal of bringing Shopify to the world or not.
1: And I think one thing that was really interesting, I actually didn't know that you guys had a developer store and an app store. And I was in Romania last week and met with a friend who moved back, started a company that is actually on your app and he built like a whole, I think there are 30 people just building an app for Shopify. So tell me a little bit about how that came to be and how do you think about that in relation to growth?
0: Yeah, for sure. So the Shopify has a huge ecosystem of app developers, agencies and other partners that, you know, extend the capability and the product market fit of Shopify to very important and different use cases. When you think about Shopify and Shopify growth, there are many teams, many growth teams, even at Shopify that are working on separate parts of the business. So for example, our ecosystem team really does the work to drive the growth and the success of that ecosystem platform. So they've made changes to the way that our fee structure is on the the app store Kind of the theme store is another piece of that puzzle and our partners and so on. And so there's a team that's really focused on that. We have growth teams that are focused on uh, specific business lines. So like Shopify Capital and Shopify Shipping and Fulfillment Network. And then we have our revenue growth team, which is really focused on, that's the Shopify Plus team, which is focused on that enterprise and high-end brand Part of the business, which is the Kylie Jenner's and the Red Bulls and the staples.com and that type of thing. So you have different growth teams focused on different functions, and they all support the, the Shopify flywheel in one way or another. But yeah, I think the ecosystem team is incredibly important because it's a superpower that makes Shopify as extensible as possible without overcomplicating it. I think one of the product principles that Toby Lukey often talks about is like, hey, we want to solve the majority of people's problems in the best, most elegant, easiest way, simplest way possible. But then we want to make the ability to solve problems possible for those edge cases, for those other business models, that type of thing. And I think that's really where the ecosystem comes into play is that like, That person you met in Romania can build an app that extends the product market fit of Shopify for a given segment of business. It's a superpower for the platform. And it's just another way that Shopify enables entrepreneurship. Yeah. So it's a win, win, win. It's more app developers, I love it. create more product market fit, create more entrepreneur. And it's another flywheel that spins and it makes us Shopify extensible for all sorts of use cases that we could, there's no way we could build ourselves.
1: That's very cool. Tell me a bit, you know, I've, I follow you on LinkedIn, or I think we're connected on LinkedIn. And I think one thing I've noted: Morgan is always hiring. Always hiring. <laughs> always hiring. So tell me a bit about how, you know, after you joined Shopify, how did you build your team? How did you grow your team? I think these teams are structured very differently depending on the company. So I'm kind of curious how you did it.
0: Yeah, for sure. So kind of going back to our overall organization structure, we have... The growth marketing pillar, which is mine, which is kind of the customer acquisition side. And then we have growth product, which is Archie's, which is the activate sign-up activation, trial success, retention piece. And so those are kind of the two pillars. And then we operate in a semi-matrixed kind of model. And what I mean by semi-matrix is we have across all of growth, whether it's growth marketing or growth product, we have what we call missions which are essentially like work streams or pods, you know, can use like different words for them. But what they are is they're cross-functional groups of people against our biggest business objectives and goals. So for example, we have a paid mission. And in that paid mission, we have both the channel experts, so the people running Google ads and Facebook ads and all of that. We have product leaders who are building the automation Platforms and tooling to do that at scale. We've got the engineers that are doing that work, the data scientists, creative UX, and so on in this kind of cross functional mission. So it's a true cross functional team executing against one of the biggest growth levers that we have for the business. And we have many of those missions. And so it really gives you the ability to combine the marketing superpower with the product and engineering superpower to get this kind of cross functional growth. Execution team. And like at Facebook, we operated in a true matrix model. Sometimes growth lives like solely in product or solely in marketing. And this is kind of like stitching the two together into like a true cross functional working model, which is one of the big things that Luke and myself and Archie championed as we joined and set our team up that way. And then take that kind of operating mental model and then Shopify itself has seen tremendous growth over the last 18-24 months as a secular tailwinds about like consumer behavior, business behavior, response to covid, all of these things and so the business uh, acceleration combined with the need to really build this purpose-built team to go after this opportunity has just resulted in a in a ton of hiring needs so that's why I'm constantly spamming LinkedIn with whether we're hiring folks in Japan or China or On the paid side or to staff some of these teams, it's just kind of building on that momentum that the product and the company has and and trying to make the most of it.
1: How does international play into that matrix model? I think that's one that I struggle with at branch, and I know a lot of other, both marketing and growth leaders. How do you layer in international with like growth, and how do you localize growth?
0: I think this is something like we're still iterating on, and marketing is decentralized at Shopify intentionally. Like I mentioned, the revenue's got their marketing teams, ecosystem has their growth teams, business lines have their growth teams. And so we are intentionally decentralized to allow us to move towards our objectives. But it does take some, especially when you get into the international markets, it takes coordination and and collaboration to make sure that we don't ship our org chart. That's the main mandate from Harley and Toby is like, no matter what, don't ship our org chart to our merchants, which I think is great advice for any company. And so the way that we do that is one growth. We have a great internationalization and localization team. They're fantastic. They are experts in localization. And and we have a kind of a very clear model for how we think about, for example, if it's like content marketing or paid advertising is we have, and I stole this from Google, so it's, it's not my own, but I think it's helpful is we have like an adopt, adapt, and invest kind of framework. So on the adopt side, it's like, what are the central... Growth or customer acquisition teams doing that work in, in many countries. And how, how do we adopt that into a local area? Google and, and Facebook have 85% of all internet traffic. How do you get economies of scale by adopting that kind of around the world? Then we have adapt, which is like, hey, how do we, we want Shopify to show up natively in any market with the right value propositions? the right creative we show up as a native player in that space and this is really where our localization and internationalization teams come in where they are adapting what we do to fit the market whether that's from a creative value proposition tone of voice you know all of those things and and really trying to adapt that and then we have our invest segment which is hey for a given market we need to do things very differently or we need to augment what's in those other two buckets and whether that's uh, in China we need to be great on Baidu, you know, intense and ads or in Japan we need to be great on Yahoo Japan. And so by using that kind of mental model helps figure out the right level of investment on a country basis and that's basically how we go about it. I think we have a lot more work to do there. To be honest, I think Shopify has had a lot of their success in like the core English speaking markets and I think there's a huge opportunity and I think seeing some really interesting things in APAC and Latin America and the EU. So I think it's something that we constantly iterate on, but I think we're, we're making good headway there.
1: That's awesome. I'm not surprised. How about the importance of social? You, know, you mentioned earlier that in some of these countries, most of the traffic comes, the way people use internet is through super apps or social networks. You guys, uh, I saw that you just announced a partnership with TikTok that would allow TikTok users to shop on the app. How do you think about these social networks as your partners, frenemies? I don't know. (laughs) You tell me. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. So I think Harley uh, says it best when he says the future of commerce is that businesses have to be wherever their customers are. They can't dictate where their customers are going to discover them or buy from them. And so from Shopify's perspective, it's like, how do we give any merchant, the ability to show up in where their customers are, where they're discovering them, where they're looking for more information and ultimately where they're buying. So whether it's TikTok, Instagram shops, Facebook shops, third party marketplaces, Google shopping, we want to make it really easy for any merchant to have kind of those superpowers that would be historically reserved for larger players that had larger teams, more resources could build those integrations. And I think from a general world lens, yeah, commerce is no longer a discrete point where you drive people from point A to point B, but it's really like where they are is where that action is going to take place. And then how does Shopify show up there in the best way possible for merchants? I think whether it's TikTok or Instagram shops, I think you'll continue to see as there are more platforms and more ways to buy, you know, Shopify wants to make it as easy as possible for our merchants to participate in. And so I think that's really what drives that kind of channel, channel strategy.
1: I like that. Any, like, as you think about the future, any, any networks that you're like doubling down on, both in English-speaking countries as also internationally?
0: I don't know about like specific networks, but there are like movements that I think are really interesting. Shopify just announced our first NFT collaboration with the Chicago Bulls. And so kind of non-fungible tokens, crypto, currency, the creators, you know, kind of making it really easy for creators to monetize. And so I think as you see commerce evolving in terms of who's participating in it, what's being sold... I think it's really exciting that Shopify is at the front of that doing some cool stuff with augmented reality products and, and that type of thing. So if I think about the big macro trends of like Web3, Metaverse, those types of, of things, Shopify definitely has kind of irons in the fire on those fronts. I love it. Yeah. Like, I think it's cool that like any merchant could NFT, you know, sell their own uh, NFTs through Shopify. I think that's like a neat, a neat opportunity that will become more important over time.
1: Agreed. I think I'm very curious to see where that goes. Yeah. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch that. So I think, you know, you've had a really cool career, worked for like some hot companies. So one question I always like to ask is, what's one of your favorite campaigns that you ran to drive growth and that you're, you know, very proud of? And it can be a Shopify or it can be before yeah. you get to pick and if you want to do more than one, that's also cool. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Let's see. I'll try to try to pick a couple here. I think one of the cooler ones is before Shopify. So uh, I'll go. So when I was at Inman, even before Facebook, basically Inman is a real estate publication. It's a trade publication. It's kind of like an ad week or like a small Bloomberg, but basically like a very niche kind of media company. They had a very Specific business model, which was like ad revenue from page views and then offline events. And the way the business worked is like it operated at a loss 10 months out of the year. And then two months it had wild profitability anchored around like two events that they had one in the first half of the year and one in the, the second half of the year. And so that was the business model. But when I joined, we did a bunch of basic stuff. Like we fixed the SEO because it's a content site. We've like really understood SEO. We figured out what would drive viral sharing of articles? That would like fix the fix the ad engine underneath it. So we did a bunch of like structural stuff. But one of the things that really stood out to me was that in this space there was no, there's very little competition, and so there was a premium that the news that we were producing could be. We weren't getting a fair price in the market for it with the ad model. So we basically introduced a subscription uh, model to it. And it was highly defensible, uh, super high value business expense, single source of truth, you know, very differentiated kind of content than anywhere else you could get. And that subscription product really took off and, and ultimately ended up driving, you know, about 40% of the company's revenue. And so when I left, we had 10x the run rate of that company, mostly based on the subscription growth. And so that was really a good lesson for me in understanding like, hey, for what you're offering, is it? Priced right in the market? Or is the value exchange equitable or not? And in this case, the answer was no. Like the company was clearly leaving a lot of opportunity on the table based on its unique value proposition, based on the business model it had chosen. And so, like, really getting to build that and grow that subscription was really fascinating. And we did it through a couple of ways. We did a lot of customer acquisition, a lot of partnerships. We also built a really big kind of enterprise kind of subscription model through a sales driven process. So we did a bunch there. That was really interesting.
1: What were the results in the end?
0: Yeah, I mean, the results in the end were like 40% of the top line revenue coming it's, from the subscription. That's awesome. Wow. So yeah, and like that comp uh, Inman was actually just acquired last month and a huge driver of it, you know, of that acquisition was the recurring revenue. So that was very cool. And then there's like smaller things like When I was at Qualaroo, we launched growthhackers.com, which was like a community play to aggregate a lot of like marketer intent. I've done some viral campaigns uh, in the past. I think this stuff at Facebook is super impactful and super interesting, but so specific to the Facebook ecosystem. So there at Facebook, it was a lot of like ranking and recommendation Tuning. So I was working on a product called Messenger Kids, which is a family messaging app where the parents are in control of the messaging experience like YouTube Kids. So a lot of that growth comes from on platform, like on Facebook. And so Facebook has a lot of distribution channels built into it for its internal products. And obviously, there's a lot of like ranking and recommendation happening in the news feed and in almost any surface in Facebook. And so there it was really building my ML capabilities and understanding how ml rankings and recommendations drive growth and so kind of almost very different skill set there but was a lot of fun and so lots of interesting kind of hey if we change how we think about the value of this event or this feature set in a model what does that do in terms of performance and so yeah it's hard to generalize those to like things you should also try. But I think the general area of ranking and recommendation is, is something that a lot of growth teams have not invested heavily in that depending on the scale you're at can be really interesting. And obviously you need like sufficient scale to do that well. But yeah, that was kind of some big learnings from Facebook anyway.
1: How do you do that? I think uh, one thing I heard is in, in many cases, some of that is a lot of that t- t- tends to be manual until mm-hmm. you start like learning and building your system. So I'm just curious if that was true, if how much of it started manual and then turned into algorithms or was it algorithms from the beginning? I think it's a hard thing to do. I, I've doubled a bit into that and it's not easy.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think you're right. Like I think ML can get, like it sounds very like highbrow and complicated, but essentially what you're looking for is you're looking for things that correlate with success. For however you define that, and then figuring out how to identify those correlates and then get more people into similar states or conditions that correlate with success and seeing if it's actually causal or not. So, what I mean by that, and so you can start very manually. So, for example, at Inman before Facebook, so small business, 30 people, one data analyst, right? So, no data science, no ML team. But we were trying to figure out if there were predictors of long-term retention based on website behavior, right? So we logged a bunch of event data into Segment, and then we tried to tease out which events correlated with low the lowest churn rates that we would see. And so some of this stuff is not rocket science. It becomes very obvious very quickly. If you're in a longer subscription plan, you're less likely to churn, duh, right? Like that's a no-brainer. If you have certain kind of what I would call like value events or like events where the person is getting value from the platform, the larger the number of those, the lower likelihood of churn, which is again, like a no-brainer statement, but like actually going and figuring those things out can be done manually way before you get to the point where you actually need a regression curve and like all of this stuff. Yeah. Like at Inman, we we've, we've figured out that the plan type that you're in was the most important thing for retention. So how do we like drive annual plans? It's easy. The second one was, hey, if you read X number of articles in a given month, you could plot that curve really easily. If you read zero articles a month, you're most likely to churn. one, two, three, and then it starts to level out at four. So we're like, oh, cool. If we can get you to read one article a week, we we'll probably have a better chance of making you successful. And then you can go test that assumption. You know through A B testing or cohort based look at things. And so yeah, you can start off very manually there. And then as your data sets start to grow, then you can get more sophisticated in like identifying these events and so on. But I think it starts with the very first step, which is like actually understanding the eventing and the the clickstream data and the customer data coming from it. Like what's the upstream source they're coming from? What's like do we have the right event logging? And and most of the places don't. I mean even coming into so Shopify one of the, the first things, one of the big foundational infrastructure things that we're doing is just like improving our fidelity of our event logging to kind of get like higher fidelity understanding and some of the key surfaces and, and user flows. So I think it's like endemic everywhere that you've got to kind of start there. Very cool. I feel like I've been saying that for years, but it's all still always true. <laughs> <laughs> like even at Facebook we would go into we would go into a flow, and be like, what's happening in this flow? And you try to build a a funnel and you'd be like, oh, we don't have enough logging here. So the first thing to do is log the flow, let it run for another seven days, then look at the data,
1: (laughs) then make a decision. I think we don't make enough decisions based on data in general. I think sometimes because we don't have the data, sometimes because there's so much data to look through. Yeah. So I think think that's kind of like the more we can make all our decisions based on data, the more, the better, I would say. Yeah, well, and sometimes it's boring too, right? Like, like the, one of
0: the like not sexy truths of like growth is like sometimes you just have to go do like the really yeah like boring stuff. It's not flashy. It's not viral. Like I remember at Facebook, like digging through event logs, event by event, looking <laughs> for you know a not like kind of like like oh, there's like eleven percent of these events look weird. Like what's yeah. going on here and. I- <laughs> You know, like that's an 11% win is a huge win. But, you know, unless you're going through thousands of rows on a spreadsheet, you're not going to gonna find it. And so being willing to actually do that yeah. work as opposed to like always trying to hit home runs is I think what separates like great growth teams from those that say they're a growth team.
1: That's a quote. I think we're going to use that quote. <laughs> uh, nice. I think that's a really good one. So Morgan, you've had a really cool career and you wrote a book. How did you get into growth? What made you decide to write the book, and then do you actually think that book helped with your like career after?
0: (laughs) So, uh, how I got into growth. So in college, I found that I was really good at marketing stuff, mostly events like promoting like charity events or parties, (laughs) or you know, kind of kind of like actually like driving results of like social gatherings is kind of what I was good at. I was not good at the school stuff. You
1: were the promoter. You're a promoter (laughs) in college. I was like,
0: I was like a (laughs) wannabe promoter. It was more like we were never able to like throw really good parties. And so I was like, what, how do you throw like a really good party? And there was like some non-obvious like kind of psychological things that you could do like the idea of like hey there being a line at a door making more yeah. people want to come <laughs> into a party is like a very real thing and so I learned a bunch of these kind of things offline but I'd always had an interest in, in computers uh, like I used to like I had a Tandy TRS-80 in my bedroom we used to like hack together a bunch of like you know the last language I could actually like code in with any competency is like basic so when I left college, I really was like, I just want to work in the internet industry. I started in operations. I worked at a startup. Uh, you know, if you are like reasonably competent and like willing to just work very hard, you'll get more opportunity thrown on you. I got a whole bunch of opportunity in terms of like product marketing, product management, digital marketing. When that uh, program kind of imploded, or when that pr- uh, company imploded in the dot com bust. I went and worked at like a Razorfish type digital marketing agency. This is like 2000. So people are just getting websites at this point. And what I learned is like, there's a bunch of stuff you could do from like traditional advertising, like spend to put like banners on like Alta Vista and stuff like that. But actually the stuff that actually drove traffic was things like, Hey, we could launch a community forum. We could launch an email newsletter. We could do SEO, which at that point was like, you know, putting white text on the bottom of white pages and, you know all sorts of like not great seo practices but what it basically taught me was like there was a different toolkit many of which was kind of like light building lightweight products like i built like you know mortgage and recipe calculators different databases community forums like this kind of lightweight product management for the web which kind of gave you way more traffic and users than any given like single ad campaign could so that's kind of what like sparked my interest in this like weird intersection between like customer acquisition and product management. And then really just kind of pulling that thread through of like, Hey, how do we, how do we think a little bit differently about what it means to like reach people online and how you do that versus kind of like, I don't have an MBA in marketing, you know, like I, I don't have the traditional background. And I actually think that caused me a lot of pain because, you know, I took a lot of I've taken a lot of L's in my career and been punched in the face a bunch, but also gave me a unique lens to look at things more from like a web native kind of approach of like first principles, like how would you do this versus like trying to apply, you know, the 4P like marketing framework onto this medium. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of how I got into it. I wrote the book because there literally was no canonical source. Like one of my favorite endorsements of the is from james courier where he was like you know morgan and sean have finally documented what we've been talking about in back rooms and small huddles for years which is like hey this is how you actually optimize customer acquisition and customer growth programs at like web kind of scale and so that was the greatest compliment uh, to me which was like yeah we just it really was a way to document and share this like craft kind of more broadly because I think there's a lot of confusion even today and like what growth means and i definitely take part of the blame for that with the whole like growth hacker uh thing and I think like that's that phrase is no longer worthwhile but i think the methodology and kind of the process to doing it is still really valid and then yeah I think in terms of my career did it help i i think it helped i actually think it's less about the book and more about the connections that I made kind of along the way, right? Like I got a chance to work with Sean. Sean introduced me to Luke. Luke hired me at Facebook. You know, those are the types of things. So yeah, whether it's the book directly, I don't know. But the opportunities that the book provided certainly meaningful.
1: How much work was it to write the book? I think people always think, oh, I should write the book. And I've definitely thought about that in the past. And then when you start thinking about what it takes, it's not easy. So
0: yeah, so it's really hard. I think I also did it really wrong. I learned a lot <laughs> doing it like don't write the book the way that I did it. My biggest mistake was starting from the point of view that in order to like sell a book you need to write a book first, which is wrong actually. Like what I did was I wrote a first version of what ultimately became Hacking Growth with Sean and then we took it to some agents and they're like it's a great idea but this book as it is won't sell. So I ended up writing 100,000 words that we scrapped. We never used. I have as a Google Doc somewhere. And our agent, Elisa DeMona, who is like an amazing book agent. She's the agent for like Seth Godin, Reid Hoffman, you kind of name it. She was like, this is a great idea. Forget writing the book, write the book proposal. So that we put the whole book down, just focus on the book proposal. That took like eight months. Then once the book proposal was sold... Then you have to write the book. Uh, that's when the writing really starts. And then for there, you know, our end book was uh, 80,000 words, but I think we wrote about 200 to 250,000 words. So a lot ends up on the cutting room floor. There's a lot of like revisions and it's not just one or two people writing the book. It's like, there's like eight people involved because you have copy editors you have the overall editors you have the people you know there's like tons of people and so as an author you're really just trying to make sure that like seed of an idea or what you're trying to get across to the market comes through at the other end of that process and so yeah i mean i loved the experience the people at random house crown business our editors everyone were fantastic to work with but it is it's non-obvious really from the outside like what goes into getting one of those out the door? Wow, that's thank you so much for sharing that. I kind of joke it's like when you have a child, you're like, I never want to have children again. And then after a couple of years, you forget all the pain. You're like that went I'm into it. You're like, I can, yeah. I'm ready. So you know, maybe there'll be another book at some point, but nothing in the works.
1: That's cool. I think it's probably similar to starting a company.
0: <laughs> yes, you would you would be able to speak much more to that.
1: <laughs> I just have a lot of friends who sell their companies. They're like, never again. And then two, three years later, I was like, okay. <laughs> Get the itch. Yeah. So this was this was awesome. We usually end with a few questions to get to know you better as a person. So question number one of our lightning round is if you had to delete all the apps and you could only keep one, what would you keep?
0: I'd probably keep iMessage or yeah, probably iMessage. Everything else could go. I think I could live with just that. I don't know. I'm so bad, also at directions. No, though that Maybe I keep, maybe I keep Google Maps. <laughs> I'm really the most directionally challenged person that anyone's met. So, well, you
1: could say that iMessage comes to the phone. So then, yeah. that one you can't really delete. But like Google Maps, I think. I yeah, think, I'll I think, go. I'll I think go those with Google are good.
0: Maps. I don't don't follow me anywhere. I'm not good at that.
1: And then, if you had an app that could you could speak to one animal, what would that be? I'm hearing a dog in the background. Is that the animal or maybe not? You, you.
0: I do have two loud dogs. Uh, unfortunately, they're very yappy. They're very lovable. But working from home is challenging sometimes. I think, who would I want to talk to? I'd probably want to talk to some kind of bird. You know, just mm. like tell me what it's like to fly and like look down on a bunch of stuff. I think that would be pretty interesting. So maybe like an eagle or something like that.
1: I like that. We haven't had that answer before. That's very original. And then lastly, what's a one unlikely app on your phone? I have a lot of apps that you wouldn't like
0: traditionally expect maybe like a middle-aged man to have because I'm constantly playing around with stuff. And when I was working at Facebook, I had I was really focused on kind of that, that younger audience segment. Plus I have a toddler at home. So I have a lot of like younger apps. I don't know. So I have stuff like Discord and Dispo and I also try pretty much everything. I had the GM app, like the good morning viral app, you know, so I have a bunch of like stuff like that, that you wouldn't expect for me to have on my phone. What else do I have? Like random travel apps for like hailing taxis and stuff in different countries that I've traveled to also. So uh, yeah, I think it's just, I have so many apps on my phone. I think I have about 400 apps on my phone. So it's, um, it's just like clutter at this point, but yeah, I pretty much install anything that catches my eye and then don't do a good job cleaning it up. So But those would be the big categories.
1: I love it. Cool. Well, Morgan, it's been really awesome having you with us today. I feel like I learned a lot. I definitely went down some rabbit holes I was really curious about. Thank you for sharing.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's great to catch up with you.
1: Yeah. Thanks again. Cool. Thanks, Mala. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.